have given it to us in our language that we can understand it, we can read it and apply it to our lives. We thank you for the precious gift that it is that teaches us about who you are and who we are. And we ask that you would help us in our looking at this text this morning. Father, we pray that you would continue to use our congregation in this uh, location to bring many to you. And Lord, to proclaim faithfully the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we don't just pray for ourselves. We pray for other churches in our area. We lift up Pine Swamp Baptist Church this morning that you would continue to work in and through them in the southern part of our county, that you would encourage them, that you would strengthen them this morning as they gather together. Father, we lift up other churches in our network, and this morning we lift up Redeeming Grace Church down in Greenacres, Florida. Our dear brother, Pastor Jarvis Singleton, Lord, that you would encourage him, Lord, as he labors in your word, as he seeks to um, shepherd the church that you have gathered there. Father, that you would encourage him in these difficult early days of this church and how uh, difficult it is to overcome some of the hurdles in church planting. And I pray that you would strengthen him, that you would encourage him, and that you would bear fruit uh, from the preaching of your word, that, Lord, you would bring many to you, that, Lord, you would uh, just, just bring fruit from that church and that many would come to know you. Father, we lift up the persecuted church. We lift up uh, the church in Mauritania this morning that uh, they live in hostile areas, and we ask that you would strengthen the church there. Uh, Father, that your word would go forth, that many that don't know you might hear the gospel and be saved. Father, we know that there's people in our world that have never heard of or even seen a scripture, and we ask that you would work amongst those and send missionaries to them. We lift up the Ampanang people of Indonesia, that, Father, you would send missionaries to them, that to our knowledge there's no uh, translation work going on in their language group. And we ask that you would bring missionaries, Lord, that the Bible would be translated. They might hear of you, come to know you, and to be saved. Father, let these things weigh upon our hearts as we uh, just enjoy the fruit of many years of having the Bible in English, that we can understand the pain that they are in after hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years in darkness, we ask that you would bring them the gospel. Father, we lift up all of our world, uh, the Afghan and Ukrainian refugees, uh, the horrors that are happening in Myanmar, Burma, the war crimes, the atrocities against their own people. Lord, we know that you see all this, but we pray for these people. We pray that you would show mercy. God, give wisdom to our own nation and its leaders. That, Lord, we at times are frustrated with uh, decisions our leaders make, but you tell us to pray for them and to submit to them, and so we do, and we ask for your help in these ways to obey you fully, but, Lord, that you would have mercy and draw those that don't know you to yourself. Father, we pray for the sick. We continue to lift up McKenna Matkins in her struggle with cancer, Lord, and be with her family, Lord, and have mercy upon her. Father, for Scott Prevett, we continue to pray for him, for Kimberly Finney's father. Thank you also for being with my own Uncle Tom this week as he had triple bypass surgery and that he's recovering. We thank you for answered prayer there. We continue to lift up Jeff Miller, the wife of Beth Miller, 
at Life Store Bank, Lord, that you would just continue to bring healing to Jeff. Thank you for sparing his life. We pray that you would continue to bring him strength to his body, that he would look to you and that you would comfort his family. Father, we pray for those who are grieving. We think of Kitty this morning and, and uh, Ken, Lord, as they grieve the loss of uh, Kitty's brother, Jerry. Father, we pray for Jerry's daughter, Amy, as well, that you'd bring comfort to her, that she would look to you, that, Father, the gospel would permeate Kitty's family, that, Father, you would show your grace there. Father, we pray for Phil, that you also would have mercy upon him as he's in the hospital. God, you would answer prayer there. Father, we lift up Sandy as well, and she, as she deals with the loss of her brother as well, that, Lord, you would strengthen her and help her. Father, we lift up our own beloved Pastor Quinn, Lord, as he is sharing at Grace Reformed Baptist Church of Mebane, that you would strengthen him as he has shared in Sunday school and then will preach in the evening service this evening, that you give him strength and great rest in his conversation with the elders there, and um, that uh, you would strengthen our relationship as churches. We thank you for Pastor Stu and um, for the other pastors there and their work in Mebane. Father, finally, as we look at your text this morning, would you help us? Encourage us, Lord, by the, the awesome ending here of the Gospel of Mark, that indeed the tomb is empty, and that has great implications for us and great encouragement. In Jesus' name, amen. In the spring of 2020, just a couple years ago, exactly two years ago, Time Magazine devoted an entire issue to the theme of finding hope amidst the coronavirus pandemic. And while there are articles that each of us could relate to concerning our common humanity, the glaring reality of most of the articles was that they were seeking to find hope in a, quote, this worldly sense. There's little talk of the afterlife as if it doesn't exist. Perhaps this is a revelation of the postmodern world that we have entered, or further, that there's an idolatry of safety and security in seeking to save our lives over and above everything else. In shorter form, self-preservation at all costs. It's, a stri it's striking when we read the text of Scripture to find that this is exactly how the disciples reacted to the arrest, trial, crucifixion, and the following burial of Jesus. They were nowhere to be found. They were weeping. Their worldly hopes, as it were, were dashed to pieces that this Messiah that they thought was going to take control and overthrow the Romans had not, in fact, done that. And Jesus plainly told them that if they were going to be his disciples, that they were to expect something far different. And he had told them many times over that he was going to suffer, die, and rise again. And further, that they were to take up their crosses and follow him. And so as Mark was, has so faithfully done in his gospel, he has sought to lift up the suffering servant before us. For our eyes to behold him for who he really is. That he is the son of God as he opened in chapter 1. And he has us look at who it is that Christ really is. That he indeed is God in human flesh. That he is the Messiah promised to us in the Old Testament scriptures. Therefore, 
the end of the book of Mark leads us to one thing. And that is to not just question how it is we will respond to these truths, but ultimately that we're called to worship him because he is risen. And therefore, that has implications on his entire ministry and validates what he did on the cross and what he said he was going to accomplish there. And therefore, our worship is much to be given to the Lord. And these implications here on the resurrection is what we want to focus our attention on. But also, that to follow him, it means great and sometimes costly accounts that we will have to suffer. On the other hand, it provides a profound sense of hope, both now and in the future. Multiple times, Jesus shared with them that he indeed would do these things. And while the disciples sought in this life to look at what Christ was going to accomplish in their day, Christ clearly taught that there was going to be wonderful realities that were experienced after his resurrection. Therefore, speaking of true victory in the next life, that hope, that is the hope of the resurrection, is what gives implications to why we as believers ought to be filled with joy and also informs us in how we ought to live our lives. In fact, having this hope and yet remaining in a sinful world as Christ's people reminds us that he has not left us as orphans, has he? He hasn't just gone off to heaven and left everything to be what it's going to be. He is the resurrection and the life. As Romans 5.10 says, For while we were yet sinners, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. How much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? The promised Holy Spirit has come and dwells in our hearts and our lives are called to follow him in faith and repentance. These are the words that Mark has led us to and conclusions of his gospel. And so Jesus himself is going to cause his redeemed people to persevere and to share his gospel until he returns at that last generation, whether that is five years from now or 500. And so we don't have to wait till Easter to look at the glories of the resurrection. As you know, here at the gathering, we, we don't seem quite influenced by the liturgical calendar, that we can only talk about his birth at Christmas and his resurrection at Easter. It, in fact, is pervasive in every Lord's Day that we celebrate the glories of the risen Christ. And so every Lord's Day is a time to consider this great hope concerning the resurrection and its implications. But let's look at this final text in verses 1 through 8 of Mark 16 in three points. First of all, we want to look at the arrival of the women at the tomb. Secondly, we want to look at the announcement of the angel. And thirdly, the astonishment of the women. You could also look at this in another perspective, is that there is a witness to the resurrection from a human standpoint, the women, Secondly, you could look at it as a testimony from heaven, from the angels. And lastly, there's going to be the biblical witness of those that they share with uh, as far as taking this message um, to others 
as they walk away in astonishment. Of course, we get that from the other Gospels. We know that they didn't stay silent, even though Mark records here that they went afraid, went away afraid and didn't speak to anyone initially. So let's look at our first point here. The arrival of the women at the tomb. It says this, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices. So it seems to be that they bought this after the Sabbath was over. So this could have been late Saturday evening after the sun was down. Um, most likely it would not have been early Sunday morning because uh, it was so early that, that a lot of the shops and the bazaars and all that would not have been open. So they probably would have purchased these things on Saturday. And notice that their intent there so that they might go and anoint him. Now, this was a kindness shown to the dead. They were also trying to pay their respects in the, after the chaos of Friday. And so very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, it says, they went forth to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who's going to roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back and it was very large. Let's back up a little bit here. Notice in verse one, the text begins saying that the Sabbath had passed. Mark, of course, has been referring to the start of a new week. Therefore, an opportunity to anoint Jesus' body had to be on hold while they waited for the Sabbath to pass. They were acknowledging the Sabbath. We looked at that last week. We also looked at the text of Matthew that said they observed the Sabbath. And the Sabbath here, though, is an important detail in the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection narrative. We're not just pulling this out of nowhere. I, I love how the text shares this because there's been a transition, hasn't there? This is a Sabbath like no other. Matthew Henry on this passage notes this. Never was there such a Sabbath since the Sabbath was first instituted as this was. During all this Sabbath, our Lord Jesus lay in the grave. It was to have a Sabbath of rest, but a, it was also a silent Sabbath. It was to his disciples, a melancholy Sabbath spent in tears and fears. Well, the Sabbath is over and the first day of the week is now the first day in a new world. I like Matthew Henry's uh, comments there because everything had changed. And we talk about how the Sabbath was ultimately uh, changed and fulfilled, and yet our rest in Christ and the perpetuation of a Lord's day has been established. And we discussed that last week. And so while we discover this and the glory of why it is that we as Christians meet on Sundays, it goes back to what was accomplished at the cross and sealed at the resurrection because if Christ had not risen, all that supposedly had been accomplished on the cross would have been meaningless, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. One of his last words from the cross, if you remember, Jesus says, it is finished. So what has he finished? Well, we discussed this as well, that the Passover lamb provided substitutionary atonement for his people, exemplified in the temple that the temple veil was torn in two from top to bottom and no longer could the old covenant be at play for there was a new covenant in Christ and he alone is our high priest as Hebrews teaches. Truly the former Sabbath had passed away, the new one has begun. But prior to discussing these things coming to the tomb, it begs the question, where did Jesus go 
when he died? It's a fair question. We weren't able to look at this last week, but it begs the question here. And so I want to take a few minutes to consider this. Not exhaustively, but to consider it for a moment. While there's many false teachings that have come about over the years concerning where Jesus went after he died, some have taught, of course, that Jesus went to hell and continued to suffer for the sins of mankind, which goes directly against the biblical text that says he finished and accomplished his work on the cross. And while we can understand how people get confused on this topic, the Bible never teaches that Jesus was, in fact, in hell. It's not helpful either that a line in the Apostles' Creed says that he descended, where? Into hell. And there's an explanation for this, but it doesn't help with the confusion. It's important to understand several things concerning the terminology of the place of the dead. First of all, in the Old Testament, the place of the dead is referred to as Sheol. And Sheol is simply a place that refers to where people go when they die, where their bodies begin to disintegrate and go into dust. It can be directly translated from the Hebrew, the parts, the lower parts of the earth, or literally being in the earth. But as we know, man is not just material. And so while his body goes into the earth, his soul goes to an intermediate state. And this is taught throughout the scriptures. In fact, several New Testament passages give more insight into this place of the dead. The word Hades in the New Testament is used. It's also translated uh, hell in many forms. And there's ways that that's unhelpful because this brings confusion. The New Testament clearly distinguishes a difference between Hades and what Revelation calls the lake of fire, which is the ultimate um, place that is a place of judgment for the devil and his angels and for those who will reject Christ uh, in, in their final judgment. And so then Hades, properly understood, like Sheol, is a place where the dead go as an intermediate state. Our own confession speaks of this. But mankind awaits there the resurrection of the dead and final judgment. And sometimes when we refer to the dead as dying and going to hell, it's not literally happening at that very moment. We are awaiting judgment and we will all face judgment, and then the end will come, what we call eternal states. But this is directly opposite of what we would see from the Catholic tradition of purgatory. And so in the biblical teaching, some will go to everlasting life, others to everlasting judgment. But we also see here that there's a separation of those who have been reconciled to God through faith in Jesus and those who die in their sin. Jesus himself taught this concerning the rich man and Lazarus. If you remember that story, speaking about going to Abraham's side, where uh, there's a place where Abraham's seed dwells. In other words, those of faith and those who have followed after him in trusting in Jesus and looking for his arrival. As contrasted with the rich man, that is, who went to Hades, where there's torment in flames. Separation of the unrighteous and the righteous after death is clear. And so notice that even then Jesus said to the rich man today, or to the, to the man that was suffering with him on the cross, said, today you will be with me in paradise. Also a reference to Hades, but a different part of Hades. Jesus did not say, today you'll be with me in hell. If in fact that's where Jesus went. He would have been lying to the man 
that had trusted him on the cross. And so where exactly did Jesus go? Well, the other New Testament passages that Jesus um, talks about says that he descended to this intermediate place, which we would call Hades, and set captivity captive, as we see in multiple passages of the New Testament. This phrase is often used primarily in the Old Testament of victory, primarily when one goes to war and sets people free. See this used in multiple places. So it begs the question, what is it that Jesus delivered these people from? Well, who is the enemy? Well, if we put the passages of the New Testament together, we know that man's enemy is obviously sin and death resulting from that and let alone everlasting judgment in the end. And so the New Testament goes into great detail concerning that Christ has had this power and when he rose from the dead, it conquered sin, death, hell, and yes, our enemy, Satan. Jesus brought about a reversal of the curse from Genesis 3. The enemies of sin and the consequences of death are ultimately dealt with by God through Christ and crushing the satanic rebellion and bringing at the beginning all things under his feet, some which were fulfilled immediately, others which we shall see in the end of time. So Christ has freed his people And he's accomplished this on the cross. And when we can see this great freedom that was purchased, when we consider passages like even in Matthew uh, 27, says this, that the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. There was immediate fruit of the resurrection Others also were raised from the dead and prophesied concerning these things. Perhaps this is part of this um, first group of those who had been freed. These risen ones, again, would be a living witness to those captives that are living witness of those that were the captives that had been set free, just as we will be freed in our death. So it's a picture of what awaits all those who find hope in Christ. And so the implications come after the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The Bible speaks of death as a mere euphemism by saying that it's just sleep and rest until the resurrection comes, that all shall be awakened. And so with this background, I think that's important for us to understand and answer this question of where Jesus was and what he accomplished. Of course, we could be more exhaustive, but that's important to note as we look at these women coming to the open tomb. Now, back at verse one, notice that there's three women mentioned here, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, and notice that they've brought spices so they can anoint Jesus's body. Let's take these women real quickly. We've been studying them throughout the book of Mark, so there's not a lot of explanation needed. But by way of reminder, Mary Magdalene had been freed uh, by Jesus of demons. We know that from the book of Luke and other parts of the gospel, that she became a disciple, was attentive as with the other women to the ministry of Jesus and his surrounding physical needs. She was a witness to Jesus' death. Mark chapter 15, verse 40 says... John also records this, 
Further, she was a witness where he was buried in verse 47 of our last chapter. And finally, she's a witness of his resurrection, as we see here in this text, that she, along with the other women, were the first to tell the disciples of Christ's resurrection. Now, not in the book of Mark, she's also personally visited by the risen Christ. Can you imagine that? Secondly, we see here Mary, the mother of James. This is the James the Younger, who had a brother Joseph, or Joseph, who also was a believer. And while we don't know a lot about her, she definitely was a witness to Jesus' death and resurrection. She was with the other Marys. As you've noticed, Mary was a popular name in the first century. Lastly, we see Salome. We've been looking at her throughout, and she's most famous because of her sons, the sons of thunder, James and John. Jesus, part of Jesus' inner circle. She followed and was a disciple of his throughout her time uh, in the last three years of Jesus' ministry. Her sons, again, were obviously brought to the forefront in many of the uh, encounters that Jesus had with them in training them and them following. But tradition tells us that she perhaps was also the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus, which would make James and John Jesus' cousins and Salome, her aunt. She too was a witness to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So it's these women mentioned here by name were seeking to honor Christ on this first Sunday morning after his death. Meanwhile, where are the 11 disciples? Church, we're not just names on a page. Notice that Mark gives attention to the true events that happened on that first Lord's Day. That these were women that came to see the body of Christ. They are in agony over what has happened. They are going to not seek a risen Christ. They're going to what? Anoint the body of Jesus, verse 1 says. They were not expecting a resurrection. They should have, but they weren't. And we know that from the text because they're going to anoint a dead body. But before we're too hard on them, notice their loyalty. While the disciples are huddled up in fear and trembling, wondering what's going to come of all that has happened over the last three years, it's these women that have gone out before, as the sun is coming up, and are going to anoint the body of our Lord. And so while we don't have time to be exhaustive on all the accounts of the resurrection this morning, I think it's important to note that Jesus took the time in other passages that tells us that, that Jesus took the time to speak to Mary Magdalene personally after the resurrection. She's a privileged woman in human history. She's not just the first that Jesus speaks to as, as uh, a witness of the resurrection, but she's also the first woman to be having a conversation with the risen Christ. She mistakes him for the gardener, and we can see that in the other gospels. But I think there's a great principle here. Jesus is never too busy to pause and attend to our personal needs and concerns. The other texts of the gospels say that she was weeping. He cares for those who are hurting. After all, she had followed him faithfully. And while she was going to the tomb that morning in her unbelief, she left believing what Christ had said, that he indeed is not just God, but that he is alive and risen. And so these women, again, have gone 
to do this. Look at verse 2. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? I don't know if you find that peculiar as I do, but they noticed where he was buried. And while they may have not known about the Roman guard that was posted that Mark doesn't mention here, Matthew mentions that, in their grief and doubt, they had definitely forgotten to think about how are we going to get in there? This tomb has been sealed by a large stone. And so even in their desire and reverence to anoint him, they're preoccupied to the point that the text tells us that they don't even know how they're going to roll away the stone. It was an afterthought. And so they had witnessed the place where he was about to be buried, but somehow had missed this point. So in verse 4, look at what, what happens. It says, and looking up, so apparently this is upon arrival, they're thinking these thoughts, but as they look up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back and it was very large. Like how Mark says this in the sense of the description of how this stone was rolled back. One of these stones would have probably been put in like a stone track and simple gravity would have sealed the tomb but to put it in the reverse condition was going to be a human endeavor. We don't have time to look at Matthew, but we know that that's why a guard was set and also sealed so that no one could claim that Jesus had risen and that it happened behind even the disciples back on Saturday. And I do want to note that the religious leaders are the ones who led that on the Sabbath, which was also not uh, according to the law. William Hendrickson notes in his commentary on, on Mark on this passage, says that the stone has been removed not to let Jesus out, but ultimately to let the disciples in, to see that it was empty. You can only imagine the thoughts that went through their heads at that moment, which leads to our second point. First of all, the announcement of the angel. Look at verses five through seven here. It says, on entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. we would be alarmed if we saw an angel. Don't just read through this text as if it's just, a, oh, it's just normal. This is abnormal to see an angel and be alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. I love that. Angels are just, hey, we're, we're before the throne. This is normal business. Hey, don't be alarmed as if we can. We're, we're losing our control of ourselves. I would have wet pants if this happened. He says, you seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they've laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Notice they entered the tomb. Mark says the young man sitting there is on the right side. Luke's account says there were two men. Matthew identifies them as angels the one that rolled away the stone and actually Matthew says that he sat on it. Mark makes no mention of the Roman guards like I mentioned, but they've been placed there by Matthew. They possibly have already left at this point when the ladies arrive. Mark doesn't mention that. I like how Matthew mentions this in chapter 28, verses 11 through 15 of his record. He says, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. Apparently this is after they became like dead men. 
And when they had assembled with the elders, had taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people that his disciples came by night and stole him away while others were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ear, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. And so they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. When Matthew wrote that, that was 25 years after this point, sometime in the, uh, in the 50s, not the 1950s. So this story had been spreading for 25 years that the disciples had stolen the body away. But the religious leaders knew, the Roman guards knew, the ladies knew, the disciples knew, and there was no account, there was never a body. The tomb, in fact, is empty based upon those who believed and those who do not believe. They try to cover it up. But in fact, the tomb was empty. So in our text, though, Mark focuses on this angelic announcement, not all these other details, which I think is important. We should note this here. And so while he says it's a young man, we know that he's speaking of an angel. Notice his descriptive language here, that this individual is clothed in white, showing his heavenly origin. So let's look at this more closely. Really, this angel says four different things. First of all, notice he addresses their alarm. I find this humorous, not because it, it's not funny. It really isn't. You would be alarmed too. But I think it's amazing from an angelic perspective that this is business as usual. We are announcing, we are messengers of God, we stand before God, and we're just dealing with you guys here on earth. And so as they do this, he recognizes their alarm and he sympathizes with it. But he says, do not be alarmed. Isn't that incredible? We can't see the heavenly realms with our eyes. But for those of us in Jesus, we ought to be at ease because God is for us. We are not to be alarmed. We ought to be in awe and, and, and we ought to worship. And we see this throughout the scriptures that whenever an angel appears, what happens? There's fear and trembling. You go into a state of shock because it's so otherworldly, you don't even know what you're seeing and you're trying to think about this and then the first thing the angel says is, hey, don't be afraid. As if that helps. <laughs> your, your shock and your demeanor at that point. This should excite us. But when they appear, notice it's in the sense of comfort. Don't be afraid. Don't be alarmed. And so while we look at the focus of the realities of the risen Christ, Mark brings our attention to angelic activity. And that could take our attention, but I just want us to remind us that if the angelic activity is this glorious, how much glorious is our God? How much glorious more is Jesus high and lifted up? And so we know that this is not abnormal in the sense of surrounding Jesus' ministry. Angelic activity has swarmed from the announcement of Christ's birth to the attending, attention of Mary and Joseph as she conceived and was bearing the Son of God in her womb and to Joseph to convince him not to put his uh, bride away to attending Jesus in the garden before his arrest to comfort him as he went to the cross and here again at the resurrection. There's all kinds of angelic activity. And to think that Mary, the mother of Jesus, probably had the record of the most angel encounters in her generation 
is absolutely incredible to consider. There are perhaps millions of angels as the scriptures describe them. And while we don't go, need to go into a side study on angels, I think it's important for us to think about the awe of God sending a heavenly witness to his resurrection. We know there's both seraphim, which are meant as the burning ones, and the cherubim are other kinds of angels. They're interesting creatures and, of course, not to be worshipped and given undue attention, but it's amazingly glorious how these are the announcers from heaven coming from God who dwells in unapproachable light, as 1 Timothy says. Who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, to whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And so while, again, my intent is not to derail us from our text, I want to remind us again of the wonders that these ladies experienced in seeing this angel speaking to them and talking to them. And so the wonder here is that Christ is alive. Notice, secondly, that the angel acknowledges why the women are there. It seems like a silly thing to explain why they're there. They know why they're there, but not really when we look closer and consider these things. It seems strange, but notice that their amazement, in their amazement, they're, they're probably in shock in the sense of they've forgotten everything about why they're there, but remember, they have gone to anoint a dead body. So they don't exactly know why they're there. God had other plans. He wanted to bring them there to be the first witnesses of the resurrection not the first to anoint his dead body. They had forgotten everything to their thinking up to that point and all that Jesus had uh, warned them about would take place following his death. But the text further tells us that, that the angel is simply announcing to them while they're there. Notice what he says, that you are seeking Jesus of Nazareth. In other words, this is, yes, the Jesus that you are seeking, the one who had a ministry in Galilee that was from Nazareth, that in his fleshly life, he was living out the commands and the works of all that he has done. But now, guess what? Things are different. He is risen. He's not identified in the same way that he used to be. He is the risen Christ. So he speaks of past tense. The one you are seeking was crucified, past tense. But present tense, he is risen. Which brings us to our third point of what the angel announced. Thirdly, the angel announces the resurrection itself. Look at the end of verse six. Again, you seek Jesus of Nazareth. He was crucified. He is risen. I love this. He is not here. Sorry, we're not doing office hours today. He's not here today. He was here yesterday, but he's not here today. See the place where they've laid him. He simply says, open your eyes, look at this. There is no one here. Jesus is not here. He is risen. And while this shouldn't have been a disciple, uh, I mean, a surprise to the disciples, he told them over and over again that this was the case. I don't think I need to say that again and again, but it was the truth. There was unbelief in the hearts of his disciples. Not only does he announce that Christ is risen, but he states the obvious again, that he is not here. They're not to be alarmed. He's acknowledging why they're there. He gives the announcement of the resurrection. And then fourthly, look at what the angel says in verse seven. He admonishes them to go. 
Notice it's a command. He says, but go tell his disciples and Peter that Jesus will meet them in Galilee. Thus, the herald, the first heralds of the resurrected Christ were in fact these privileged women. As with Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who put Jesus in the grave, they played their part in the burial of Jesus. These women were given the great part in announcing the great news and be the first heralds of the gospel. In a culture where women's accounts would not readily be received as proper witnesses, God chose to use these women as a means of his communication. I think it's compelling here that the information had to be communicated not from just angels at the beginning, which they did. Why is it that angels didn't communicate this to the others? But God often uses as his normative means of communication is humans made in his image. Heralds, if you will, of the gospel. That The original gospel couriers were these women. And so what implications this has in our day when we think about the gospel spreading that he entrusted to men and women who have been made in his image, have been redeemed by him, that are given a new name and new life and indwelt with the Holy Spirit and called to go forth to the nations to proclaim what he has done. And truly, when we look at the resurrection, there could be no other answer to what we are called to do. It trumps everything that we're called to do in this life. It's to make him known, to herald his great resurrection, that we serve a risen Christ and it goes against any other world religion. They don't have a risen Christ. They don't have one that represents both God and man and makes sacrifice of for sin. It doesn't exist. And so what joy the resurrection and what implications it has on Christian living. But lastly, on this verse, notice that the angel asked them not to just go tell the disciples, but it's his disciples and Peter. I think this is a beautiful note in the text of Mark. Remember, Mark's main source here is Peter himself. Peter is recognizing the great grace of the resurrected Christ upon him. Doesn't mean that he is no longer a disciple. Yes, he denied Jesus three times the night before the crucifixion. His last sight of Jesus was a corrective look that no, long, no doubt was cemented in his mind forever. But no, just as the angel was just as gentle with the alarm of the women at the tomb in dealing with them, the angel softly communicates the grace and the implications of the gospel and the resurrected Christ to even Peter. Peter indeed was a disciple, albeit one that was wounded but nonetheless a disciple. What hope this should breathe into your soul if you as a child of God have failed to forgive yourself of the many times that you indeed have failed Christ. Oh, there's forgiveness of sin in the Lord Jesus. And while we don't have time to look at John 21 this morning, we know that Peter was eventually restored. In other words, tell Peter I'm alive. This changes everything. And we know just 50 days later, Peter's going to be preaching at Pentecost. He's a changed man because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We need Christ. He is our life. And so he breathes this wondrous hope into our souls. And yes, he sees even you right down to the way that you are thinking and you are feeling. And so lastly, let's take a look at verse 8. Notice the astonishment of the women. 
And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. So how did these ladies respond at first? Well, uh, we, we need to understand the great shock that they're in. Alone, anytime that you, you're faced with an angel, there's this sense of that you are in a trance. It's the, the, the Greek word here is almost this ecstatic uh, place. And, and fear is appropriately communicated here. Have you ever had an adrenaline rush? Sometimes mixed with fear and excitement, but this causes a sense of shock. And so they're sitting here trying to recover in this situation and notice that their minds are trying to process all this. Talking about drinking from a fire hose. But the text tells us here that they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Again, there's no doubt it's true of their present state, but we know that eventually they do leave there and they do tell the other disciples as Matthew records in his gospel in chapter 28 he says this so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples and behold Jesus met them and said greetings isn't that nice for him to show up and they came up and took hold of his feet and they worshiped him and Jesus said to them do not be afraid go and tell my brothers and go to Galilee and there they will see me even Jesus is saying, don't be afraid. So their fear ultimately would give way to joy, but it's appropriate as Mark communicates this, he wants us to see the great anxiety that came upon these first, resurrect, or first witnesses of the resurrection. Further, we know from the other gospel that Jesus appears to the disciples Sunday evening and then eight days later to doubting Thomas then he appears to them as he promised at Galilee. He restores Peter in chapter 21 of John. And as 1 Corinthians says, that over 500 others were witnesses to the resurrection, most likely in Galilee. And then finally, even to Paul himself. Church, the doctrine of the resurrection is foundational for our faith. Paul mentions that without the resurrection, the Christian faith is completely dissolved. But I want to remind us here in verse 8 that it leaves us almost with this pessimism of that they were much afraid. I made arguments in Sunday school concerning verses 9 through 20, but I think this also shows us that Mark's ending here is important. But perhaps Mark isn't intending to end it here. There are answers on both sides. I'm not going to go into detail here. But we know that verse 8 seems to be very authentic to Mark's writings, although it seems short the way that he ends it. It's not necessarily, in my opinion, that Mark intended to end his gospel here. There was more to say because in verse 6 and 7, he's telling them of what they need to expect in Galilee. And the other gospels also mention him in Galilee where he doesn't. And so regardless of what happens, there's wisdom here that as we look at the great measuring of the gospel together with all four gospels, I find it amazing that Luke says this at the beginning of his gospel. When he writes to Theophilus, he says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, 
It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have what? Certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. What a glorious truth to open a gospel with. Mark seemingly also says the same thing. The truths about Jesus, the son of God, the title that he often is known for in his gospel. Church, we can be confident concerning this gospel that Mark says has been entrusted to us. It's rock solid. And Mark has told us in his gospel, the suffering servant born of a virgin indeed is God. He is indeed the Messiah. He indeed is the fulfillment of the Passover lamb, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He was crucified. He died and was buried. He was raised, as the scriptures say, for our justification, as the apostle Paul later on says in Corinthians. This church is good news. Our very faith relies on the account that Christ indeed is alive. So this is what Mark admonishes us here at the end of his gospel to believe. And so what are the implications for us in 2022 about the resurrected Christ? In fact, our salvation we know depends on it. And while we can make hundreds of applications about the risen Christ, I want to share a short 10. Yes, I said 10. Short 10, but we're going to move quickly. First of all, I've already said this. Jesus is alive. Your faith is not futile. We serve a risen Christ. He is not an idea. He is a person, and he's made himself known to those who have trusted in him and his work efficacious in our lives. He is a high priest that intercedes for us. He is the God-man, Christ Jesus. Secondly, Forgiveness of sin is available. Like I said, what he accomplished at the cross, what our brother Quinn has been preaching of all that God was accomplishing through Christ on the cross would have been meaningless if Christ stayed in the grave. Think about that, church. And I know we know this, but the reality that you have been forgiven of your sin, you should be walking out of here with a big smile on your face this morning. You should be rejoicing, overflowing, that my sin is not on my account any longer. It's been taken away. For those who have come to him in faith and repentance, if there's one here this morning who's never been reconciled to Lord Jesus, let this be the day because Christ has freed you from the bondage of sin if you will come to him and simply follow after him, as Romans says, to believe that he has risen from the dead, you shall be saved. Thirdly, the implication of the resurrection is that we have spiritual life now for those who believe. Jesus spoke of being born again, and this truly describes those who have come to faith in Christ. Fourthly, we also will rise again to new life. It's been said that Christians grieve at death for those who have died, for our believing friends and relatives, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope. The resurrection of Jesus secures our hope of our own resurrection. Death is not the end. There is in fact a hereafter, an eternal life, which starts now and continues after we die. As Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. The sting of death is removed. 
Fifthly, an implication of the resurrection, that we have power through Christ, empowering us by his Holy Spirit to live the Christian life. The very commands of God are able to be obeyed where we weren't able to do anything but disobey prior to our salvation. That we as God's redeemed people might reveal the glory of God to all around us and it will be a display of his glory. As Colossians 3 says, if you have been raised with Christ, notice that's present tense. It's not you will be raised with Christ. He's speaking of the glories of the resurrection now. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek those things that are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things on this earth for you have died. Present tense. You have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You are no longer your own church. You are freed but you inhabit the very Holy Spirit of God to be about his service. He has created a new people for himself and you are that people. And so when Christ, he says, who is our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That is future tense. It's not just tomorrow. It's not just our after death. It's now we have the very presence, abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul identifies, of course, there even in chapter three, that we're therefore to put our sins to death, which leads us, to pursue holiness and embrace grace rather than abuse his grace. Sixthly, it cultivates a spirit of gratitude for what Jesus accomplished at the cross. If you do not have a spirit of gratitude for what Christ has done for you, you haven't been listening to the gospel of Mark. Christ died in our place the great doctrine of justification should breed great thanksgiving and worship from our hearts. Seventhly, the resurrection of Jesus enables us to love Christ with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. That has implications in every area of our lives. It's how we love our children. It's how we work in our jobs. It's how we choose our entertainment. It's how we live our lives. It's what we do with our money. It incorporates everything we are. Our Christianity is not just on Sundays, or it ought not to be. He challenged us to live out this life in all areas of life. As Jesus said in John 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Eighthly, the implication of the resurrection is the truth of the resurrection gives us the ability to endure personal suffering as a privilege for the sake of Christ. Did you hear that? Privilege for the sake of Christ. In other words, safety is not our priority. If we were concerned about safety, we would never go to the ends of the earth. If we were concerned about our safety, we would not be gathering together on the Lord's day. If we were considered about our safety, we would not be obeying the commands of Jesus. And even if they kill us, it doesn't matter because resurrection is true. It has implications on personal suffering. As Paul said in Philippians chapter one, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you also should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Ninthly, implications of the resurrection is that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for you. John 14. In other words, there's implications around the resurrection, both now, but also when we die. I don't think this this um, fact is, is, could be any more exciting. We're, we're in the midst of moving right now, which is absolutely miserable. But this moving, we're going to a place he has prepared for us. He is preparing a place for 
us that we might be with him. This is why the scriptures refer to death of Christians as those who have fallen asleep. We're going to wake up in a new home. If that doesn't excite you, then go away because you're discouraging me. This is but a nap, folks. We will open our eyes in glory. What a glorious thing this will be that we will in fact behold the risen Christ. Tenthly and lastly, as a point of application, like I said, there's hundreds and I don't want to preach for three hours, just two. The resurrection of Jesus gives us an eternal mindset, not just an earthly mindset. We are called to live this life in light of the next. And sometimes that causes us to do foolish things that would even seem like bondage to the rest of the world. Why would you go to the ends of the earth? Why would you go live with that tribe? Why, 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 why don't you watch what we watch? Why aren't you spending your money the way we spend it? Why aren't you responding to the world's problems like we are? Why aren't you trying to save the world? Church, we will always be seen as foolish because we live on different principles, God's principles, which leads us back to right where we started this morning. Time Magazine devoted an entire issue to the theme of finding hope in midst of the coronavirus pandemic. But how much more has our God given his entire word to address our living hope? The Apostle Peter, I want to close with 1 Peter 1, 3, and 4 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for helping us through the book of Mark the glorious truths that we've been able to think about these last two years has been a great joy. The great joy of the gospel and of your resurrection, oh God, would you show us the implications of what that is for us as believers. God, I pray for any here this morning that have never trusted you. The gospel has just been words on a page that you would breathe life in and through those individuals to restore them and revive them and renew them that they might see your gospel and be saved. Lord, I pray that you would help us as believers that maybe have been downtrodden or thinking about earthly things far too much, that you'd help us to live in light of eternity, in light of what you have accomplished, that you, the risen Christ, are real and with us. And with joy and implications that gives in our faith, to go and do what you have called us to do, whether that's serving here in this locale or going to the ends of the earth, that Lord, you would accomplish your work in and through this congregation to your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.